Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like tears, waving and sandbags. Yes, indeed. And I thought of these, Sam, because they're very much on my mind at the moment with what's happening in Ukraine. And one of the most extraordinary things that I saw on a Twitter feed was in um, in the Ukrainian city of Odessa, which is under attack at the moment, a monument of the city's founder, uh, the Duke de Richelieu, uh, was covered in what looks like like, um, almost a thousand sandbags to try and protect it, uh, to sort of preserve that cultural heritage. Um, So that was my inspiration for that. But we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the related history of first is in fact all about the history of California and access to water. It's a global history of drinking water. It's also about Pablo Valencia's extraordinary trek through the Arizona desert and the scientific study of dehydration. It's about the history of teetotalism, the discovery of five crates of liquor under Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic hut, and... It's also all about historical cocktails. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of the colour red is in fact all about romance and the history of emotions via Macbeth and blood, early cinema and technicolour. It's about the superstitions connected to people who had red hair, but also red thread. It's also about the history of race, ethnography and Native American peoples. It's about favourite colours. And of course, it's all about Judas Iscariot. Who knew, Sam Willis? It's also about Robert Burns' poem, A Red, Red Rose. Oh, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love is like the melody that's sweetly played in tune. Who knew? <laughs> it's all very good. Sandbags really is quite interesting. I've just uh, kind of got my head around that. It's all to do with imperialism. I've yes. just worked out. Um, there are some wonderful, wonderful images of um, the, the kind of early 20th century archaeological excavations in Egypt. People like Howard Carter, who I'm going to talk about in a minute, actually. 
um, oh. you know, kind of excavating these tombs of the Egyptian kings. And they used sandbags uh, to protect. You've got to dig deep. You've got to dig deep and into kind of really dangerous rock faces and cliffs and stuff to, to excavate the Egyptian Egyptian mummies and all the Egyptian relics. And obviously the way they protected themselves was through clever use of mining techniques, using uh, timber to shore up passageways and sandbags to stop walls coming in. They were all obviously filled in by hand um, through... Um, uh, native Egyptian labour, and uh, obviously all to do with the trenches as well. Oh, I think we should do sandbags, James. It'll be absolutely fascinating. And floods. There's sandbags everywhere. They're so handy. I think we should also do corridors. Oh, OK. Humanitarian like corridors. Very much on the news at the moment. Mm. People trying to flee and escape. Yeah, actual corridors. Um, actual anyway, corridors. Let, me, let me tell you who, uh, who this fellow presenter of mine is. If history was a dinner party, this man would, of course, be the chef. Or perhaps the cook, James, I'm not sure. Uh, preparing a little shellfish bisque of the Tudors, a pâté of the Stuarts, a souffle of the Georgians, a palate-cleansing corned beef fondue of the Cold War. He would cook the most delicious and intriguing foods, but as the man who would be ever so concerned not to overfeed and crush your hunger for the past, he would minutely control your portions of historical tre- treasures in a slightly sinister, controlling way so as to keep you addicted but never sated with the historical mystery. Uh, He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, Sam. That's an extraordinary introduction. I think it's one of your finest. Uh, It must have taken you hours to craft. However, it may well... It it did. I'm sure it did. You may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a hunger-related historian, he'd only be the Marcus Rashford, he of free school meals of the historical world, making sure that the deserving people have their historical sustenance and nourishment. He'd be the Oliver Twist of the past, unsatisfied with his meagre portions of gruel, constantly wanting more of history, glorious history. He'd be the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, feeding the 5,000 with loaves and fishes of historical features, far from a starving, skeletal and emaciated (laughs) form. This man is simply fat with facts, Stuffed with stories. He's gorged himself upon the great events of the past. He's the exact opposite of Hungary. It's the well-fed, well-nourished, but incredibly elegant, famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. <laughs> I was rather Hello. pleased with that one. <laughs> that was amazing. That You're was Jesus Christ, that... Marcus Rashford and Oliver Twist. <laughs> so yeah. You're a messiah, you're a brilliant footballer and you're a literary legend. Mm, All in one. And elegant elegant as well. Evidence of a lengthy Sunday afternoon on the sofa, James. (laughs) It was was actually a rushed five minutes this morning. Oh, oh, okay. Well, there we go. Um, Hi, guys. We're doing the history of hunger, and we wanted to do a, a few themes based around. Uh, what's happening in Ukraine and obviously uh, the control of food and um, getting access to food is an increasing story. I saw a video on TikTok, I think it was this morning, of some Russians stealing some chickens from someone's garden um, and I've also seen some other imagery of, of Russians taking food from shops and obviously a very concerning stories about people having to walk hundreds of miles to safety and being very uncertain about where they're going to get their food from. So we thought we would do the history of 
hunger. Um, James, what did you think about this? Well, I <laughs> we've been obviously watching the same sort of social media feeds. I saw those Russian troops with, armed with what looked like rakes, sort of chasing, rather sort of comically chasing chickens around somebody's chicken. Uh, pen or hut. Um, coop, I think. Coop, coop. That, that's probably the technical term. Um, yeah, I mean, deeply, deeply distressing seeing what what's going on. Um, and reports on the BBC from a Ukrainian MP several days ago saying that Mariupol is believed to have had just three days of food supplies left. Somebody else describing on Newsnight the other night or some programme on the BBC, one of the sort of news feeds on the BBC, um, an MP, again, a Ukrainian MP describing how his parents had no heating, no real food, no water, and were having to, and no heat, and were having to sort of scavenge for food and then cook it outside on a, on a fire. I think one of the things also is the, that you need to think about this in a sort of, in a global context, in that Ukraine is you know, one of the big uh, agricultural producers of the world. It's nicknamed the breadbasket of Europe and about, you know, quite a high proportion of wheat supplies come from this region and and also Russia. Um, Wheat prices have gone up 40% this month and you've got to think about what impact that has, you know, not just on that region, but then on the the rest of the world. So I was, uh, that's been sort of, you know, that's been sort of, really sort of charging the way I've been thinking about this. But I also had my parents to stay a couple of weeks ago, and I was saying to my father, this was actually before the war broke out, and you had suggested that you wanted to do something on hunger. So I said, Dad, I'm going to do something on hunger. And he said, oh, you must tell tell Sam about um, Uncle Billy. Uh, Uncle Billy was my uh, father's mother's cousin, um, Billy Davis, who during World War Two was a a mariner, and he was on a ship in the in the Pacific. I I don't know any of the sort of exact details, uh, which is which is very useful as a historian. Um, <laughs> this is a family anecdote. Um, but but the 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 ship was torpedoed. He spent forty days on a raft, and he was one of the few survivors of a significant group of men. And he confided later, a long time after the war to my grandmother that in fact they had been so hungry so starving that he had in fact eaten the bodies of his dead comrades um so an extraordinary sort of family tale there um Mm. i know where do you go from there sam willis what were you thinking where were you going to go with hunger i i I could have spoken about uh, cannibalism um i i Mm. didn't um but the uh just it is interesting that in shipwrecks when people did eat each other there was a very kind of established people weren't surprised by it they knew it could happen and they had Mm. there was a very kind of clear unwritten rules and regulations to describe how it was done and more importantly who would be eaten first and um, it's me i had uh, no idea sam Oh, do you not? Well, no. This is, this is. I always find that histories of the unexpected is an educative experience for me, as yeah, well, well as our listeners. This, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, put it this way: if you if you're if you're white and you're on a ship full of white people and there's one black bloke, uh, then the black bloke goes first, and then the uh, Asian person, and then the Chinese person. Uh, it was all completely covered in in racism and right. beliefs on. Um, 
the ability to contribute to society and the ability to contribute to your specific the specific uh, situation you found yourself in which is interesting so uh, French people uh, notoriously considered as worse than useless in the shipwreck they didn't have the stamina the endurance the uh, moral fortitude that would be required to survive in the most extreme circumstances therefore they could be eaten uh, and uh, children so uh, if you were all white um, then uh, it was run by adults the the youngsters would go first and these would clearly be british ships so french ships would would wouldn't wouldn't think of threat themselves as um, unable to do <laughs> things have, like they'd that. They'd have to eat, eat their own heads. Um, yes. No, uh, but no, uh, I'd, I'd be very interested to see how it works the other way. But certainly in you know the British records, mm. uh, it, the, the French are useless, Italians terrible, um, and uh, you know very interesting how this all all works out. So it's obviously also linked to do with with um, your own personal skills. So if you are a very sort of skilled sailor or a whaler or whatever it might be, then it's very unlikely you're going to get eaten yourself. Um, no, I didn't think about that. I um, you should have was, done because it was excellent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I was thinking about uh, war and well, uh, you know, kind of the, the the links between war and famine, um, uh, particularly. And then I came across all sorts of other reasons for famine, um, drought, and uh, locusts and things. And uh, and while I was listening to the news, actually, I was sidetracked by the whole thing this morning because there was an announcement. Um, about the the ancient manuscripts of Timbuktu. Did you hear that this morning? I did not. No, I was glued uh, to the opening of the unfolding events in Ukraine. I'm re- oh, right, reading so, very little else at the moment. Um, a little, a little, a little episode on the World Service. So um, this is kind of like half a million pages of the most wonderful manuscripts um, over kind of nine centuries, which come from Timbuktu in Mali. So this is uh, an ancient city in Central Africa, kind of guarded the trade routes across the Sahara, a very important place. Um, uh, it came under attack by extremists in 2012, and a lot of the heritage sites, a lot of the most wonderful libraries and collections were destroyed, but not all of them. And what happened was there was a wonderful example of a citizen archivists, I should call them, going to the rescue of the surviving manuscripts. And mm. they smuggled them to safety in, in boots of jeeps, in cars, in canoes, up rivers, stuffed down trousers, whatever they could to get them um, out of the grips of the extremists who were setting fire to them. And they managed to get them to safety where the surviving ones have been preserved. And we've got more than 40,000 of them have been preserved and are now digitally available for the very first time on the brilliant Google Arts and Culture website. So do make sure you have a look at that. That. Um, full of all sorts of uh, important wisdom. Um, and um, really interesting topics. Sex tips is an interesting one. Uh, whether smoking should be banned. There's black magic. All sorts of stuff on peacekeeping, human rights and natural disasters. And all of this comes back to hunger, James, because many of those that survive in the best condition come from the 17th and the 18th century. And Timbuktu is particularly interesting in the 1730s because it suffered one of the worst famines in history. So from 1738 to 1756, it's estimated that half of the entire population of Timbuktu died of starvation. Now, it is inconceivable that such uh, an extraordinary event would not have survived in the archives 
um, and uh, in the written sources of Timbuktu. Uh, so I haven't had a chance to do that, but the the um, the link was there for me to explore, and I would urge everyone to go and check out the Timbuktu manuscripts on Google Arts and Culture and do some a bit of original research and for, for histories of the unexpected to see what is there that records this uh, appalling period of famine. Um, that was caused by drought and locusts in, in the um, first half of the 18th century. So um, I was inspired to go and do that. And while I was there, I was nosing around on the um, Google Arts and Culture website. I also found the brilliant Tales of Hungry Ghosts, which is a 12th century manuscript. It's in the, in a, a, the Museum of Kyoto in Japan. And uh, it is the most wonderful collection of images describing the tales of hungry ghosts which is um a really important part of buddhist thoughts and the, the idea here is that you've got some hungry ghosts who suffer from eternal starvation and thirst who haunt those in the human realm and the images are just about as fantastic as you can get of um of dark creepy monsters and ogres uh, causing trouble um, with the people who are minding their own business, trying to um, trying to get a, get around their their daily lives. So that was the um, the spectre of hunger and how how um, hunger can be um, described and drawn. I thought was interesting, and I bet there's a really interesting art history of that um, and and how it's depicted. But a great place to start is the Tales of Hungry Ghosts, twelfth century manuscripts from Japan. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That's fascinating, Sam. And where you found that on Google Arts and Culture. Google Arts and Culture. Yep. I shall check it out presently. Um, mm. I was, I'm going in a completely different direction. And I, for Christmas, I got uh, Che Guevara's Motorcycle Diaries. Uh, so I've been reading it uh, in recent weeks. And with the idea that we might do something on motorcycles. 
Uh, however, one of the big themes that runs through it is a theme of hunger. And so I'm going to use that as a way of looking at hunger in different forms. Now, Ernesto Che Guevara uh, was born in uh, June, on the 14th of June, uh, 1928, lived until the 9th of October, uh, 1967. Very famous Argentine Marxist revolutionary. He also trained to be a doctor. He was an author, guerrilla leader, military theorist. He's a major figure in the Cuban revolution. He's become a sort of a symbol for uh, counterculture, uh, or counterculture symbol of rebellion. Um, and, you know, I was in Bristol the other day and noticed uh, a sort of uh, a sort of image of him uh, on a mural there. So he's still somebody who's, you know, very much revered and respected, very sort of iconic figure. Um, the Motorcycle Diaries is before he becomes politicised. And actually, it's about his politicisation. It's when he's a young man training to be uh, a doctor in Argentina. He's a medical student. And with a friend of his, uh, a man called Alberto Granado, he sets off in late 1951 on a motorcycle. This, for those of you who are interested in your motorcycle, it is a uh, 500cc Norton that they nicknamed La Ponderosa, which means the powerful one. And basically, this is almost like a sort of a gap year. They decide that they, are, they have very little money to take with them, and they go and they drive around the length and breadth of Latin America. Now, part of it is it's seen as a sort of a carefree tale of two young men sort of, you know, sowing their wild oats on the road. So it's part that. But also, alongside that, it's this really deep, um, disturbing exploration and observation of life throughout Latin America in all its you know depravities and i think the 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 themes of poverty disease hunger oppression of people is is redolent in the in the book but also it's what radicalized uh, che guevara uh, during these period this period but what's what's fascinating um, actually, before I go on to what is fascinating, what's slightly disappointing is that it's called The Motorcycle Diaries, but in fact, the motorcycle breaks down quite <laughs> early on. <laughs> By about page 40, the motorcycle has packed up. They've been driving over these bumpy roads, they've been falling over, and then uh, the subtitle should be uh, The Motorcycle Diaries, colon, and also hitchhiking and catching trains around Latin America. Um, you know, that much more accurate. But what's really interesting is that you have these two, you know, highly educated young men from Argentina who are basically touring their way around um, different countries. Um, and what's interesting is not only are they doing it on a shoestring so they have no money, they are themselves constantly hungry and needing to scrimp and save and rely upon the charity and hospitality of others. In other words, that is a way of actually getting at the customs within Latin American countries about how you treat strangers and how you are hospitable. It's also really interesting about a code among medics and the way in which they can you know they can parade themselves as young doctors and almost turn up at a hospital 
and say who they are, where they've come from, and they will then be given food. There's one, one, they're normally quite sort of polite with it, but there's one point in the book where they just become so desperate that they simply turn up at a hospital, say who they are, say that they, are, you know, are, are training to work with with lepers so they're, they're students of, of of leprosy and the the young doctor that they that they speak to uh responds you know in a rather sort of embarrassed way by just simply taking out his wallet and giving them some money um but it's also interesting that not only that sort of side of things but it's also interesting about the the grinding poverty that they meet as they go around the countryside that they you know you literally see uh, a degree of poverty that you know is positively sort of developing world and you know and really heartbreaking to see uh, particularly among the indigenous peoples who consistently seem to be downtrodden oppressed and among the very poorest of society but alongside that there's also there are also some sort of more comic uh, aspects, some comic ways in which they manage to get their, um, in which they manage to uh, kick, trick people into giving them food, which I'll share with you in a minute. So there are two bits that I want to read uh, to you from this. Um, one little extract here is is where they've been treated to a very uh, elaborate meal. Um, they fixed their bike. They've been wandering aimlessly around the city. They've been given some some meal. Um, and then they, they, they ref he reflects that afterwards a rigid diet of meat, polenta and bread would have to be followed strictly to stretch out our meagre finances. The taste of bread was now tinged with warning. Uh, quote, I won't be so easy to come by soon, oh ma old man. And we swallowed it with all the more enthusiasm. We wanted, like camels, to build our reserves for the journey that lay ahead. And then there are descriptions of, you know, various sort of lavish meals that they're treated to, magnificent lunches, but then also where they come across people who are very much at the sort of bottom of society. And there's one uh, doctor surgery that they turn turn up to, um, and Alberto sort of goes up to one of the doctors and he sees an old woman with, with asthma. Um, and th this following description I think sort of gives you a sort of sense of the the grinding poverty and hunger that they meet on their journeys. The poor thing was in a pitiful state breathing the acrid smell of concentrated sweat and dirty feet that filled her room mixed with the dust from a couple of armchairs the only luxury items in her house. On top of her asthma she had a heart condition. It is at times like this when a doctor is conscious of his complete powerlessness that he longs for change, a change to prevent the injustice of a system in which only a month ago this poor woman was still earning her living as a waitress, wheezing and panting but facing life with dignity. In circumstances like this, individuals in poor families who can't pay their way become surrounded by an atmosphere of barely disguised acrimony. They stop being father, mother, sister or brother and become a purely negative factor in the struggle for life and consequently a source of bitterness for the healthy members of the community who resent their illness as if it were a personal insult to those who have to support them. It is there in the final moments for people whose farthest horizon has always been tomorrow that one comprehends the profound tragedy circumscribing the life of the proletariat the world over. 
In those dying eyes there is a submissive appeal for forgiveness and also often a desperate plea for consolation which is lost to the void just as their body will soon be lost to the magnitude of the mystery surrounding us. Based on an absurd idea of case will last is not within my means to answer but it's time that those who govern and then he goes on sort of spent less time sort of on you know and more time on on thinking about how to cure this so there we are we have a sort of a really um heart-rending um sort of description of the grinding poverty uh, that he struck on this on this journey but also how they there's another sort of just to sort of juxtapose against that there's a rather sort of comic element to it where they use a quite a clever technique to try and and get food out of people uh, which basically involves meeting people, drinking, and then getting them to buy um, to buy them some food. Um, and I, I'll just read you this little this little extract here. This comes after where they've take they've been given a, a, a lift by somebody, and then the person has just has just driven off and left them in the middle of nowhere. All I hope is that the driver gets what he deserves and that if it wasn't another one of his lies, the driver come Toreador meets death on the horns of one of his bulls. In the pit of my stomach I knew something was wrong, but he seemed like such a nice person. We believed everything, even the whole vehicle swap. Shortly before dawn, and here's the important bit, we came across a couple of drunks and did our brilliant anniversary routine. You'll love this, Sam. The technique is as follows, he describes. One, say something loudly, immediately identifiable as Argentine, something with a che in it and other bits of slang and drawl. The candidate takes the bait, immediately asking where we're from. We strike up a conversation. Two, begin to speak of the hardships, but don't make too much of them, all the while maintaining a gaze fixed in the distance. Three, I intervene and ask for the date. Someone provides it, and Alberto sighs, saying, Imagine the coincidence. It was a year ago today. The candidate asks, A year ago since what? We respond that it was a year when we began our journey. For Alberto, much bolder than I, lets out a gigantic sigh, saying, Such a pity we're in these dire circumstances. We weren't able to celebrate. He says this quietly, as if confiding to me. The candidate immediately offers to pay. We pretend to refuse for a while, admitting it would be impossible for us to ever pay him back, etc. And then, finally, we accept the offer. Five, after the first drink, I steadfastly refuse to accept another. Alberto makes a face at me. Our host becomes a little angry and insists, but I refuse without giving reasons. The man asks and asks until I confess, full of embarrassment, that our custom in Argentina is to eat when we drink. Just how much we eat depends on how we judge the candidate's face. All in all, this is a highly refined technique. <laughs> this is actually a technique that they use several times throughout the book. Uh, they go for drinks with people um, and then trick them into buying them uh, dinner. Uh, in that way. So there we are, Sam. Uh, che Guevara, uh, the plight of the poor in Latin America, hunger, and uh, I suppose sort of uh, protocols of hospitality uh, and tricks to make people feed you when you're hungry. Mm, protocols of hospitality. That's very good. I like that, indeed. Um, 
I I started thinking about with the war and all these people, you know, having hunger forced upon them. I thought I'd kind of flip that round and talk about people deliberately choosing to go hungry and to be hungry. And um, there's some fascinating work that's been done about the history of anorexia um, and the the explosion of that in the first quarter of the 19th century. I found a, a fascinating description here about um, a Mademoiselle C. So she's not described just the letter C, 15-year-old, a pupil around 1825 at a boarding school in Reims in France, who was subject to shaking fits whenever she heard the school clock strike and she would lightly elevate her shoulders and give a sharp little cry, which over the weeks changed into a noisy, prolonged screaming and yelling that might from afar be taken for the barking of a dog. She then developed a variety of other psychiatric symptoms, among them the loss of appetite, and this young person became emaciated and complained of extreme weakness. That's one of, 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 um, of so many, maybe 20 or 30, uh, descriptions I found from the first half of the 19th century about young teenage girls suffering from anorexia at a time before it had been described, at a time before it had been really understood. And um, later in the 19th century, when it is first described and understood, it actually leads to a huge explosion of cases. It's a very, very troubling history indeed. Um, and another example of deliberately... Um, making yourselves hungry is is extraordinary history of hunger strikes and you can't talk about hunger strikes without talking about the history of Ireland and I found a fantastic article which not only just told told um told us about different events of hunger striking in Ireland uh, such as October 1923 you've got more than 8000 political prisoners all opposed to the 1921 Anglo-Irish treaty which go on hunger strike to die uh, before the protest is called to a halt um, the 1981 this one's perhaps more famous the Irish hunger strike we've got 10 died it leads to Sinn Fein becoming a mainstream party but it was a fascinating article because it, te- it kind of ex- the cultural background to why hunger striking is so important in Ireland and um, and sort of why it came about and it's all linked to uh, religion self-sacrifice and also um, the importance of Irish heroes now, if you go back to the pre-Christian era there are these legal codes which define kind of behavior and certainly what to do if you want to take a claim against someone um, it's sort of to do with the redress of grievances. Very interesting indeed. And one of the ways of doing this was for the aggrieved party to um, seize certain items of personal property from the offender. You hold on to them until the offender's basically said sorry or, or somehow discharged his or her obligations. But in many instances, this wasn't possible, particularly if you are a poor person and the person who has wronged you is extremely wealthy. And so one way they got round this was to go, the, the phrase was fast against the debtor. And what you do is you take up a, a physical position. You go and stand next to the, the, the house of the person who owes you something. Um, and you go on hunger strike. And what that does is it draws attention to your own grievance and the fact that it hasn't been redressed by the debtor and was very, very effective as a technique from the powerless against the powerful. Um, It didn't often end in death, 
Um, because if the, 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 the debtor, the defendant, allowed the plaintiff to die of starvation next to his house, not, he would have to compensate that person's kin, but also would himself be uh, in a polluted state, it was described, um, would be fearful of the, the magical consequences that might result from the protester's death. So it was very, very effective indeed. Now, when Christianity becomes established in Ireland, this pre-existing behaviour continues, but it's done in a more kind of conventionalised way because Christians um, shut down on it, but they do acknowledge the importance of these pre-existing um, pre-existing rituals and, and behaviour. It turns into a ritual hunger strike, which begins at sundown and it ends at sunrise. So it happens at night, which I think is interesting. So uh, not as visible as, as it would have been um, in the pre-Christian times. Um, and then from that, fasting itself uh, becomes established within um, Christianity in Ireland as a purely symbolic gesture. Now you can go on and you can explore the different ways that this then carried on to have an important history, uh, particularly to do with uh, Irish heroes, um, particularly a guy called Cuchulain, um, all to do with self-sacrifice. And this link with self-sacrifice, a pre-existing pre-Christian um, practice of hunger strikes. And then when... It, Ireland becomes um, hugely Catholicised in the 19th century. So an enormous percentage of the population regularly going to mass. Um, there is a, a kind of a reawakening in this desire to, um, uh, to, to use hunger as a means of demonstrating self-sacrifice. So a uh, fascinating history, James, all tied up with... Uh, Irish heroes with pre-Christian beliefs and then with the influence of Christianity on affecting people's behaviour. So there is, it is not by any stretch of the imagination, um, a, a chance occurrence that hunger striking becomes crucially important in Ireland at the beginning of the 20th century. Fascinating stuff. Very, very interesting. And hunger strikes have been used throughout history in various ways. You can think of Gandhi, uh, for example, famously, sort of starving himself. You can think also the way in which um, suffragettes used hunger strikes as well to sort of protest their point of view. But more collectively, you can think of the, the great hunger marches um, that we see in Britain in the early 20th century, sort of groups of people facing high unemployment, basically marching collectively to um, protesting outside Parliament to show how, you know, how terrible their plight was and how they were unable to feed themselves their 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 families their children um and you know this culminates in the 1932 national hunger march which took place between september and october 1932 which is really one of the largest such marches throughout that sort of interwar period and it started in glasgow with you know a few thousand people and then it you know days later they end up in in London, um, in Hyde Park, on the twenty seventh of October, nineteen thirty two, where there, there there's a crowd of about a hundred thousand people. So we can think about we can think about that as well. And you think about the Jarrow March as well in in nineteen thirty six. So these sort of collective collective um, uh, activities that that withhold that that either protest or withhold. Uh, protest about food, the lack of food or withhold uh, food uh, in order to make their, their sort of political 
protests made. But I wasn't going to go down that route. Uh, but I just thought they were very interesting questions. What I was going to end on, quite sort of in, in very sort of short form, is free school meals. Uh, and this mm. is something that has really been in the headlines recently, rather particularly because of the work that the footballer Marcus Rashford has been doing, who's been very, very active. Um, and what is particularly worrying is the way in which, you know, there are certain children within society who are clearly coming to school malnourished, you know, haven't had breakfast when they arrive, and without access to free school meals, they simply, you know, won't you know the danger is they don't get fed properly from day to day and if you think about this 190 days of the year roughly this was Jamie Oliver's estimate is is the number of days that children spend at school so actually the state is able to intervene to provide sustenance for them and of course you know good food and diet is connected to it's connected to brain power, that sort of grey matter. It's connected to academic performance. It connects to the levelling up agenda. Um, and so actually, you know, providing free school meals for people when they are at school becomes really important. It is a real sort of social issue that people campaign about. And it has a really fascinating history. Uh, I remember I remember just a sort of personal anecdote. I remember my mother worked as a primary school teacher for many years before she retired. And, you know, there was one particular boy who had all sorts of all sorts of issues. Um, but um, one of the things I was most upset about as a sort of young boy was her coming home and describing not only, um, you know, the way in which he was treated at home, but the just the, the fact that he clearly wasn't fed and um and and I remember actually <laughs> foolishly sort of going um, rather sentimentally going out and buying um a packed lunch for him and turning up one day at my mother's school to give it to the child and she said oh James he's got he's you know we've we've sorted something out for him but that's very sweet of you but but you know it really brought it, it really brought it home to me in a in a in a very sort of personal way but anyway back back to what i was saying the history of free school meals has a has a really interesting history uh and you can follow it back to the um you can follow it back to the 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 sort of the second world war period uh and the the first national school meals policy in 1941 which introduced guidelines on what you should feed at schools that they should have a correct balance of calories and fat and protein so all the kinds of things that you would need children to you know to have when they were at school during the day in order to make them better perform and in fact if you're looking at this from the perspective of a government that's wanting a an able and productive workforce of course you want to sort of bring in nutritional standards like that this is then supplemented in 1944 with the provision of a school meal that was, and I quote, suitable in all respects as the main meal of the day. Um, and there was also a new Education Act uh, that basically made milk a statutory duty for local authorities to provide. You probably were uh, far too young uh, to remember having free school milk at schools, Sam. Um, 
Uh, I am too young. I do well. Yes, um, I I was at a school where we did get milk, so maybe they carried on once it had been banned. But um, I do remember having milk. Our 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 kids were at a school where they had where they had milk. Um, Sort of, I remember the crates seeing the crates left outside, uh, and they were brought in. But this was this was something that was brought in in 1944, and it was something that was taken away partially in 1971. Do you remember the uh, the the jibe? Uh, Thatcher, Thatcher, milk snatcher. Um, yes, it's one of the one of the best um, one of the, the best political insults I think in, in the history of political insults. It's, it's brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> and she was at, the, at that time. She was the this Edward Heath was prime minister. She was in his government as education secretary, and the idea was that she was going to. I mean, the whole thing is about it's her sort of ideology about about privatization, driving up standards, you know, through through the sort of um, introduction of of private enterprise into what was provided by the state. So it was part and parcel of that. But what this led to her doing was to put forward putting forward a plan to remove the provision of free school milk for over sevens, you know, so basically those who were at, at junior school. And this was what caused, you know, a real sort of consternation and attack on her. And then in in nineteen eighty she got rid of um free school milk for over for the um for the for for everyone uh, and the entire thing was scrapped and it meant that actually the 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 period when when we <laughs> grew up um and were were probably you know in in sort of coming into our teens as well the nineteen eighty to two thousand is a period that is seen as one of the worst uh in in sort of nutritional standards for for school meals um, and the reason that she was doing this, so removing these sort of minimum nutritional standards, um, is basically because she wanted to, as I said, introduce um, the, the sort of free market into this. But also she wanted to cut the number of families, the children from families who were receiving free school meals. And we see the numbers really reduced. And the problem is the impact that this has is that it's very much a sort of regressive act. This is something that, you know, that really needs proper uh, investment in, you know, basically what you are doing. If you, if clinically you argue that proper nutrition builds the the sort of grey matter infrastructure in the brain, um, you are basically depriving poorer sections of society from an equal chance within society. You know, and so it, it, this whole thing sort of sees, you know, maybe half a million children from low income families losing their entitlement from free school meals, and this is something that's brought that was also increased by the Social Security Act in in 1986. This, of course, is widely debated. The, the 1980 Act is widely debated in the House of Commons, and this is recorded in uh, in Hansard, uh, the official sort of uh, record of the debates that are in the House of Commons. And if you Google this up, if you Google uh, school meals debate, uh, Hansard, uh, H-A-N-S-A-R-D, House of Commons, uh, you will find... Uh, details of the debate that was had in the house of in the house of commons about this and i've got one one little um piece here by an mp 
who opens the debate, uh, Mrs. Mr. Robert C. Brown, who's the MP for Newcastle upon Tyne, and, and he sort of gets to grips with the issue here. I just want to read you a couple of elements here. I'm grateful for the fact that I have been fortunate enough to have been drawn in the raffle to speak on the important issue of school meals. Uh, he declared. I declare my interests on two accounts. First, I'm a member sponsored by the General and Municipal Workers Union, which has a massive membership at risk with cutbacks of the school meal service. Secondly, and rather personally, 50 years or so ago, as the youngest of three children of an unemployed father, I recall walking two miles from my school to another school to partake a bowl of soup and a slice of bread, and then walking two miles back again. Honourable members, can you imagine that when one is seven years old and has only one and a half hours in which to conduct the operation, there is not too much time to gobble down a bowl of soup and a slice of bread with a two-mile walk each side of that meal. And so he, he so he goes on. The Education Act of 1980 removed the requirement that the local education authorities should provide a midday meal for every child who wanted one. The government drastically reduced the number of children eligible for free school meals by confining eligibility to children from families receiving family income supplement or supplementary benefit. First the government and then the local education authorities dramatically increased the cost of a school meal released from the government imposed obligation to provide free school me to provide school meals local education authorities have made the school meal service the scapegoat for cuts in local authority expenditure he then gets uh, quite exercised uh, about the fact that that this meant that people who received school meals were identified as poor and the and actually is worried about the kind of psychological impact that this has on people um he he says here i speak with a little feeling about the stigma of the situation in other words the you know people being identified as poor who have school meals free school meals the massive decline in the numbers taking school meals will leave a residue of children taking free meals. Inevitably, the difficulties already experienced in preventing identification of these children as poor must increase. Such identification can cause enormous psychological damage to children. I hope that no one will run away with the idea that because of what I have said earlier, I am psychologically damaged. I might well have been had I been a weak, weaker character." Such a development is likely to further to reduce the take-up of free school meals among the families who most need them. Even before increases in the school meal service, the combination of the fear of stigma and ignorance of their rights deterred an estimated 460,000 children from taking free school meals. I do not apologise for repeating that figure. And so he goes on. The, the debate is, is, is huge. It runs to sort of many, many, many pages um, and I'm still scrolling very quickly down it. Uh, Neil Kinnock speaks in this, the Deputy Speaker, you know, all sorts of people. So check that out for more um, more historical detail about free school meals uh, in the 1980s. Mm, all fascinating stuff. Yeah, very good. Very good indeed. I came across something with, about uh, school meals in the beginning of the 20th century all to do with the disastrous performance of the Boer War. 
and um, how a lot of politicians blamed the the poor physical condition of the lower classes, and it led to um, led to investigation in why people were being brought up and not they weren't as strong and as fit. And one of the reasons was considered school food. Fascinating stuff, guys. Thank you so much for listening to our history of hunger. Right? It was a rampage around hunger. Um, so many different topics to explore, and hopefully you guys can take away and do a bit of your own research. Do please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis to find out more. Uh, if you're interested in maritime history, you like the story about eating people, do please check out my other podcast, the Mariner's Mirror podcast, which is all to do with maritime and naval history. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and make friends with us there. Check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for our entire back catalogue. And also, you lucky people, the opportunity, yes, get this, the opportunity to buy signed copies of our five books. So check that out. Um, You can also become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected by heading over to patreon.com. Alongside that, you can also donate to various charitable organisations who are helping with the humanitarian aid effort in Ukraine. Not with us, but but Google and find out what you can do to help to alleviate the the plight and starving of people uh, elsewhere in the world. That's it for now, guys. Cheerio. See you soon. Bye, guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.